Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about, is osteoarthritis preventable? Osteoarthritis is the most common joint condition, affecting more than 500 million people worldwide. There is currently no cure for osteoarthritis and current management strategies for osteoarthritis are largely focused on alleviating symptoms, your experience of the disease. These management strategies include core treatments such as patient education, exercise and physical activity, and weight loss or weight management where necessary. Given that there is no cure for osteoarthritis, research into the field of osteoarthritis prevention has been emerging. And although there is still work to be done in the field, there has been new insights into modifiable risk factors, such as obesity and joint injury. And on this week's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Associate Professor Jackie Whitaker to discuss osteoarthritis prevention, risk factors, and prevention strategies. Associate Professor Jackie Whitaker, who works in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia, 
is also recognized as a clinical specialist in musculoskeletal physiotherapy by the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. She completed her physiotherapy degree at the University of Alberta, a PhD in musculoskeletal rehabilitation at the University of Southampton in the UK, and a postdoctoral fellowship supported by an Alberta Innovates Health Solutions Clinician Fellowship in Injury Prevention and Epidemiology at the University of Calgary. Jackie is currently an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Research Director of the Glenn Saller Sports Medicine Clinic at the University of Alberta. Hello, Jackie, and welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming along. It's a great privilege to have a chance to chat with you about such an important topic. But before we get into the main content of today, I'm just wondering if you can share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like. Yeah, so I am a physiotherapist and um, also associate professor of physical therapy at the University of British Columbia. So I graduated as a physiotherapist quite some time ago, and I took a, a slightly unusual path to academia. I practiced actually clinically for about 17 years before I went back and did a PhD, which I did in the UK, and then went on and did a postdoc and then um, started as an assistant professor. And, and then things have gone from there. So um, yeah, I had quite a bit of a clinical background, I, I think, before I, I took that step. And some might have said I should have took the, the step a little bit sooner, but I often find that my clinical grounding um, helps a lot with my current job. So as an associate professor, I'm blessed to have a salary award. So 80% of my time is spent with research and or supervising graduate students. I do a little bit of teaching once a year and um, I've got some service commitments, but what does a typical day involve? Oh, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of Zoom meetings, um, whether that be with students or groups I'm working with, patient partners, you name it. Hopefully there's a little bit of time every day to, to do some of the tasks that I said I would do in those meetings. And then I try to always save a little bit of time every day to be able to either work on papers or research proposals or, or documents that I need to be writing and working on to move my research program forward. Superb. Yeah, there's never enough time in the day, but wonder if I could just probe one of those topics that you brought up, particularly that one around working 17 years as a clinician before getting into academia. How do you think that that flavors what you do now? How do you think it influences and makes what you do a little bit different? You know, I think a couple of things. I think I still, and I say this often when I speak, I have this constant battle between my clinical brain and my research brain, because I think as, you know, clinicians, we look at things certain ways. And as researchers, we have to kind of compartmentalize and operationalize things to be able to carry out studies. And, and often those two brains don't work so well together. But I would say probably two things. Number one, I think I look at things a lot more pragmatic. And so I'm always looking for unique study designs or ways that we can do things that reflect more what is going to happen in the real world. And I think the piece with that is that I hold my clinician and patient partners really close at hand when I'm developing proposals and I'm conducting research. And I don't think of myself as just representing that clinician perspective anymore, because I know that my perspective has been skewed by being a researcher. So I make sure that I always surround myself with clinicians as well as patient partners, so that I'm sure that what we're doing actually is relevant and makes sense in the real world. So I often think about it, you know, a lot of my research is really where the, the rubber hits the road and really how do we take a lot of what we're learning theoretically, but actually make it manifest and work in the real world to help patients feel better and help clinicians do their job. Yeah, no, wonder, wonderful insights. And it's so important. And I think being able to continue those interactions, both with patients, 
and with clinicians is so valuable as you move forward with the important work that you do. Now, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? I'm a big nature outdoors person. I love just being outdoors, whether that is, you know, I've got a cabin and whether that's splitting wood or raking or cleaning outside, just being outside and being in the dirt. I love to hike. I love to mountain bike. I just like being outside and I love photography outside as well. I'm a big fan of of taking pictures of, of scenery. So a lot of it is just get outside whenever I can. Sounds wonderful. It's probably pretty cool there at the moment. So what sort of activity do you do in the winter? All of the above? Yeah, well, you know, being in BC, being in Vancouver, the lower mainland, it's not too bad. We get a lot of rain, we get a bit of snow, but it's not too bad. You know, a cross country ski or snowshoe, but we're pretty lucky. I can run outdoors pretty much all year long and I can mountain bike, although it gets a little slippery sometimes. But yeah, you know, just get out there. And I'm lucky here compared to living in other parts of Canada where it's, you know, brutally cold in the winter. It's not quite as restrictive here. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Now, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. So how I would describe myself and how others might describe me may be very, very different. But um, I would say that, you know, I'm kind of intense. So I I tend to, you know, be a very forward person and, and sort of speak my mind or ask questions. I tend to be also very focused. And with that being said, I, I, one of the words I think that I've used a lot to describe myself is I tend to be honest and I tend to, maybe the honest isn't the word, it's integrity. That's something that's really, really important to me. I also really enjoy having fun. So I'll throw the word fun in there. And it's kind of two words. It's either mentor or mentorship. I think that having mentors in my life is really important and also being a mentor for others is important. So I'd throw that word mentor out there, but meaning kind of both sides of things. Herb qualities and the little that I know about you, you, you carry that out and with wonderful aplomb. Now, let's get into the topic of the hand of the day, and it's really about osteoarthritis prevention. And it follows a wonderful review that you co-authored with some colleagues called a lifespan approach to osteoarthritis prevention that we'll include in the show notes for today's show. So for those people that might like to dig into that a little bit further, it's come out relatively recently, but really about osteoarthritis prevention. But before we really get into that main topic, Can you just tell us a little bit about the difference between illness and disease? Sure. Yeah. And this is something that we, it was interesting as we were writing this paper, the four of us just kind of catching that we were talking about different things, but we couldn't quite put our hand on what the difference was. And I think at some point we realized that actually sometimes we were talking about disease and sometimes we were talking about illness. So disease is really I guess the underlying biology or pathophysiology of a health condition. So it's the, you know, in osteoarthritis, it's the changes that we see in the cartilage or the changes we see in the synovium or the the structural things, I guess, that we can measure and we can look at. Maybe it's a blood test, maybe it's with imaging, maybe it's with whatever type of a test. So it's that underlying biology and physiology where illness is really a person's experience of that condition. So yes, I've got osteophytes, but does that change how I experience my knee or my hip, or I've got alterations in my synovium, the disease, but does that change in how I experience what my hip and my knee can do or how they feel. So illness is really that experience. And we often talk about it at a personal level, but you could also think of it almost even at a societal level. So the experience of knee osteoarthritis might be the burden of total knee arthroplasty. So it's really the manifestation of the biology and the pathophysiology. And I think the reason it's important to understand that in the context of OA is that they're different things, but they're related, obviously. But one doesn't always 
lead to the other. And just because one's high doesn't mean the other is high. There can be a lot of structural changes and not a lot of an impact on someone's experience of their knee. Or you can have someone who's really being disabled by their knee, but actually when you look at the joint and you look for the altered pathophysiology, you're not really seeing a lot. So they are very distinct things. And as you say, I think particularly critical when we're talking about osteoarthritis prevention and, you know, as we go through today, hopefully we'll allude to whether we're preventing the disease as in the structural changes or whether we're preventing the illness as in the person's lived experience with the disease and what they actually present complaining of. But before we get into that, what do we mean? What is osteoarthritis prevention and what are the different aims as we, as we approach this big type of objective? Well, you know, prevention is this interesting word, and I think it means different things to different people. So part of my training was in epidemiology. So when I think of prevention, I think of it from an epidemiological perspective. And it's really all the things that we can do to reduce the burden of a health condition on individuals and society. So that might mean anything from preventing risk factors or doing something to allow somebody who's been exposed to a risk factor to either not progress to the condition or uh, progress more slowly. But it might also be improving the function and reducing the disability of people that have the condition. So it's actually quite a large spectrum, prevent risk factors or identify people early on that have been exposed to a risk factor and intervene so they don't progress or they progress slower or actually working with people with the condition and doing everything we can to reduce the burden of that condition on them and society by making them more functional and reducing their disability. So it's very broad. Yeah, great explanation. And if we were to look at how preventable osteoarthritis is, and you know, hypothetically, if we, if we were able to modify all of those modifiable risk factors that are potentially available, what proportion of osteoarthritis is preventable? It's probably an unfair question, but I'll let you crack it. Well, it's a tough question, isn't it? I mean, I think in theory, and I think that's what we got into in the, in the paper, is that in theory, there's these modifiable risk factors. We know we can modify them with a variety of different things, but have we ever been able to show that by modifying them, we've changed the progression of OA disease or OA illness. I think we've shown with some modifiable risk factors that we can improve the function of people that have OA. So that kind of what I I didn't use the word tertiary prevention, but, you know, improving function in people that are living with the condition to make the burden of that condition on them less. I think we can do that. I think we have evidence of that. But do we have evidence that if we prevent risk factors, well, you could say if we prevent a knee injury, we probably could prevent post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis. So maybe we have that there, but we really lack a lot of evidence around, you know, if we've got a modifiable risk factor and we address it, can we change the course of the progression after that? So it's difficult to say what proportion could we remove? I just don't know. And I think that's actually what we were really hoping when we wrote the paper was to just provoke a lot of our colleagues to understanding that there's actually a lot of ways in theory we could go around trying to prevent or delay the progression from the exposure to a risk factor to developing the condition. But we're going to have to be pretty ingenious in how we develop studies to do that, to actually show that. And, you know, we've had colleagues that have been ingenious and have done amazing jobs, particularly in the obesity perspective, but it's really hard work. And that's because there's a, there's a time lag between when somebody is exposed to a risk factor and when they develop the condition. Yeah. Some older studies have spoken about this 
concept called a population attributable risk. Essentially, you know, what is the risk attributable to certain risk factors? And have spoken about, you know, varying proportions of osteoarthritis incidence, development of disease and or illness being attributable to certain factors and specifically overweight or obesity and joint injury being the two most eminent ones. And at least the percentages that I've heard bandied around range substantially between, you know, for obesity between 20 and 50% and for joint injury between 10 and 20%. What do you think of those numbers? And do you want to make any comment about them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think obesity, I think the numbers of 20 to 50% make sense. And I, my gut is it's probably a little bit closer to the 50, but I don't know that. And if you ask me what evidence I was basing that on, I'm not sure I could, you know, say exactly what I'm basing that on, but I think there's more and more of an argument that obesity and that kind of inflammatory milieu or the inflammatory piece that's associated with obesity has a really important role to play in setting our joints up for health or not having being healthy joints. I often think, and again, this is probably just my bias because a lot of my work is related to post-traumatic osteoarthritis. I often think that 10 to 20% is an undersell, but I might be wrong. And, and, And I guess the reason for that is that injury typically happens when we're younger. You know, if we talk about the knee, most injuries kind of happen between the ages of 15 and 35. And a lot of what we've looked at for post-traumatic osteoarthritis has really been focused on one or a couple types of knee injuries, which are tears of the anterior cruciate ligament and or meniscal tears. But we do have evidence to show that other knee injuries could also potentially contribute to post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So I sort of feel like we don't have the full understanding of the burden of post-traumatic osteoarthritis, but I do think we're in the target, you know, we're in the range. I think we're probably in the range. And I also think it's difficult for somebody who maybe develops osteoarthritis in their fifties or their sixties to attribute it back to an injury that happened when they were younger. And so I, I think it's a difficult thing to estimate. So I always feel like we're maybe underplaying that, but I will say that I'm, I'm probably a bit biased in that. And, and it's just because in my mind, you know, that's a big focus of my life. Understandable, completely understandable. We've touched upon them, but can you give us a little bit of a framework about what those risk factors for osteoarthritis are? What are the different risk factors people talk about? Yeah, so you touched on it. There's probably two that get a lot of press and have gotten a lot of press for a long time. And and I suspect that it's because they are risk factors. And I think, you know, we could talk about the types of studies that you need to be really confident that something's a risk factor. But I think there's been enough studies done on a couple of them that we can feel very confident that they are risk factors. And that is obesity or an increase in adipose tissue, fat tissue, as well as traumatic joint injury. Both of those are associated with an increased risk of osteoarthritis. But there are other things as well. We know that muscle weakness, I think there's more and more emerging evidence that weakness of certain muscles around the joint are risk factors for osteoarthritis. And probably the best evidence we have here is related to the quadriceps muscle or the muscle in the front of our thigh and knee osteoarthritis. But we also know that the shape of a joint influences how that joint deals with load. And we know that there are certain conditions that we are more prevalent when we're younger and our joints are growing that might lead to altered shape of the joint, which might set us up for osteoarthritis down the road. I'm talking mostly here about modifiable factors in theory. We can modify muscle strength. We can modify whether or not somebody has a joint injury. In theory, we can modify obesity. We might be able to modify joint shape if we catch it young while the bones are still developing, or as a surgeon may also be able to have some impact on that. 
And then the other thing that's talked a lot about are sort of like high impact sports and high occupational loading. And that's kind of a loaded conversation. The last thing I want people to think is that it's bad for you to weight bear or bad for you to do impact activities. But as with any activity or any posture or any position, the real value comes from a diversity of loading and a diversity of postures and a diversity of movements. But it doesn't mean by any means that high impact things are bad, but you can imagine if you were doing them all the time and you hadn't really prepared the joint or the muscles around the joint to deal with those impacts, that that could potentially be a problem. And there's a little bit of evidence for that. And then there's also non-modifiable factors, which are things that we may not be able to change. So we know for whatever reason that females have a higher risk of osteoarthritis. Now we don't know if that's due to their biology, their sex, or if that's related more to sociocultural aspects of their identity, such as their gender. Most of it has looked at the biology piece and in particular looked at the piece around perimenopause and menopause. But I think that's something we're still trying to flush out. We also know that the older you are, the more likely you are to have osteoarthritis. So age is a risk factor. And there's evidence without a doubt that there are types of osteoarthritis that may have a a genetic predisposition to them. And I would actually argue there's some evidence to suggest that certain types of knee injuries, there's potential that there's a a genetic predisposition or at least a familial predisposition to those things. Yeah. So those are kind of the big ones that we talk about. That's a wonderful overview of a very, very complex area. And why don't we spend a little bit of time digging into those two big risk factors that you've mentioned and starting with those people who are above a healthy weight. There's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that that increases risk for osteoarthritis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and and I will just premise this by saying I'm certainly not an expert on this, but I think it comes down to two things. So number one, there's a common belief in society, and I sort of just touched on it, that if you load your joints too much, you're going to get degradation or breakdown of the joint, and then you're going to have osteoarthritis. So I think for a lot of time, you know, we've seen this association between obesity or weight and osteoarthritis. And the belief was that that was due to just excessive loading of the joint. And I think we have some evidence to support that. But I think what we're learning more and more and more is that obesity or fat tissue or adipose tissue in and of itself sort of changes the internal environment of our body and it makes it more inflammatory. And it's actually those inflammatory processes that in a way really are degradate our cartilage. They really sort of attack our cartilage and create an environment that's not healthy for our cartilage. And that can lead to a breakdown. So, you know, the current understanding is that there's a loading component, but there's also more this sort of chemical environment that starts to happen within the joints and the body related to obesity. And so it's really about trying to minimize that or do anything that we can to reverse that. And we do have some inkling, I think, in the evidence base that if we can do it and we can do it successfully, we can change people's pain that have osteoarthritis. I'm not sure we've got evidence to say we can reverse structural changes or the disease of osteoarthritis, but we can certainly make people's experience of that condition different. So we can change their experience or the illness of osteoarthritis for them, but there's work to do. Yeah. Great, great explanation. A lot of that evidence really relates to knee osteoarthritis, but there are some evidence to suggest it increases risk for hip and also hand osteoarthritis. And if you want to dig into that a little bit further, there's an older episode that we did with Steve Messier, who's sort of one of the gurus in that weight clinical trial space. But I'm more interested in hearing from you, particularly around that area of great interest to you, specifically post-traumatic osteoarthritis. What is it? Who does it affect? 
I'll premise this by saying I'm mostly talking about the knee here as well. I, I think that probably a lot of the listeners know, maybe they don't, but you know, 80, 85% of what we know about osteoarthritis, I might be exaggerating, is probably related to knee osteoarthritis. And there is a real need to understand more about hip and hand osteoarthritis. And actually, by understanding more about hip and hand osteoarthritis, I actually think we're starting to understand osteoarthritis better, in all honesty. So what is post-traumatic osteoarthritis? Well, it is osteoarthritis that happens after there's been trauma to a joint, an injury to a joint. And if we talk about knees, as I alluded to earlier, most people, we hurt our knees when we're between the ages of 15 and 35. And quite commonly, those injuries are related to a sport or recreational activity. Probably the next thing down on the list would be some sort of an occupational injury. So they tend to happen to young, active people, and they can impact young, active people's lives for the rest of their lives because they happen at a time that's very formidable for people when they're developing their activity patterns going forward in life. And they obviously have an impact on the health of the joint. So the current belief is that there's some sort of trauma or mechanism that gets set off when there's trauma to the joint, and that starts to lead to a degradation of the cartilage or, or structures within the joint that then lead to the onset of osteoarthritis. And I think probably the really interesting thing here that really delineates post-traumatic osteoarthritis from other forms of osteoarthritis is that it happens when people are young. And we know that within sort of 10 to 15 years, people can have a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of osteoarthritis. So we're talking about people, you know, as early as 25 or, or 30. And we've certainly seen those people in our studies that really have full-blown osteoarthritis. They are, as Cherry's colleague of ours, Stefan Lomander said, they are young people with old knees and they live with these disease for the rest of their lives. And it can have a significant impact on their future health through its ability to impact their activity levels and stay functional. And that's probably why I get all excited and passionate about it is that I think you've got these young active people, they are doing all the right things as far as leading a healthy lifestyle it goes. They have this one incident happen and it, it sort of leads to this downward spiral in their health both mentally and physically, that can take them on a really negative journey. But we also have young people that have this injury that actually end up doing really, really, really well. And I think the really cool thing is trying to figure out, you know, who does well with it and who doesn't and what can we learn to try to improve the journey of all those people. Great overview of uh, Jenna, wonderfully complicated area that you have fantastic expertise in, but wanting to dig into a couple of points there, particularly given that the young age group that this affects are there particular sports or activities that people do that might affect them more than others? And are these contact or non-contact types of injuries? The types of knee injuries that have the greatest risk for osteoarthritis is the two that we know the most without a doubt. Well, probably intraarticular fracture. So if you fractured the joint surfaces in your joint, and that usually is traumatic and usually it's traumatic related to some sort of a you know, motor vehicle collision or something where there's an external force. But most of what we know is related to anterior cruciate ligament tears, which is a ligament inside your knee that can tear and or at the same time damage to um, the meniscus or the kind of a little cartilage plate that sits inside the knee. And these types of injuries tend to be sport and recreational related. They tend to be non-contact. 
and they tend to be related to sports where there's a lot of pivoting or quick changes of direction. So really common in what we in North America call soccer, but you could call football if you were in Europe or other parts of the world, any of the kind of field code sports. So Australian rules football, very, very common, basketball, anything that's sort of court or field based where there's that quick turning. It can happen in ice hockey. It can happen in other, you know, more high speed activities like downhill skiing, et cetera, but really, really common in sort of those field and court code type sports. And I think that's a wonderful segue into the fact, can we prevent these from happening? Absolutely. I think we can say fairly confidently we've got high level evidence that we can prevent sport related knee injuries from happening. Can we prevent all? I'm not saying we've shown that, but we can certainly reduce the incidence of these things by 20, 30, 40%. Some might even estimate a little bit higher. And we can do that through injury prevention programs, which are just really souped up warm up programs. So, warm up where we're not just, you know, running around and doing a few stretches, but where we're actually starting to increase the circulation of the blood to the muscles, where we're practicing in slow motion and building up speed, some of the movements that we're going to be doing while we're participating in the sport, being very mindful about how we're doing those movements, addressing any weakness in the muscles that might exist that we're going to be using. And actually some of the injury prevention programs, the other thing they do is they really talk about collegial play. So, you know, when is it kind of not a late check, maybe you shouldn't be doing a late check and that puts your knee at risk and your, your opponent's knee at risk. And so talking a little bit about fair play and and best practice for sport as well. So we definitely have evidence and most of it is in soccer, but we're seeing it now adapted to rugby and other sports as well, that these injury prevention programs are effective at reducing injury. And when it comes to my world of post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis, that's the panacea because if I can prevent the injury, then I prevent the whole thing from happening. And I think that's a really, really important point. And I guess before we get there, we've done one podcast with Tim Hewitt where we spoke a little bit about joint injury prevention. He mentioned some of those programs, but are there any injury prevention programs specifically that you'd like to highlight or recommend? Yeah. And I mean, I may get some of the names wrong and that's why I'm always skeptical to do it. So uh, probably the first one that was done was done by FIFA and it used to be called the FIFA 11 plus, and now it's just called the 11 plus. And then the 11 plus has been adapted for a variety of different sports. I also know there's an app that's called Get Started, and it provides a bunch of different options around injury prevention for different sports. There's a program called Happy in Denmark that's looking at doing this with more school and child age children. We've also been involved with some research in Calgary here where they've got an injury prevention program they've embedded in schools and physical education classes. I also know the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance has one, and I think it's called Stay in the Game or Keep in the Game, and I apologize for getting that wrong, but there's various organizations that have developed them, and and when you look at them, they have a lot of similar components. I think the main thing I would also mention is these injury prevention programs aren't just for elite athletes or high level athletes. These are really programs that should be done from grassroots level. We know that if we get kids started with them and coaches started with them early in their careers and their trajectory, they're much more likely to see the benefit and carry on with them throughout their entire sporting career. Yeah. And I think that if we just want to elaborate on that a little bit further, because I think one of the important points that you made there is that these should be happening, particularly at the grassroots level. My sense of it is that it's probably not happening to the extent that we would like. What benefits would sports participants and teams 
gain from participation in these and how readily disseminable are these resources that you're talking about? Yeah, so I'll start at the end. They're incredibly disseminable. So there, you just if you Google 11 plus, you're going to find the whole thing and all the videos and how to do it on the web. No problem, no cost, nothing. It's simple and easy. And that will be the same for probably a lot of the other resources that I've mentioned. They're very accessible. They don't cost. It's just finding ways to implement them or integrate them into your warm-up. And some of the challenges that coaches face there is just their own confidence in delivering them. And sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but I've coached my son in soccer. It's that we don't have the field until it's actually practice time. So warm-up doesn't really happen because we literally have got a half an hour in the field and we've got to get out there or an hour on the field and we've got to get out there. So some of it is about developing a plan for how it's going to be implemented. Remind me, what was the first question? The first question is, what are the benefits of doing these training programs? So this is interesting. And a lot of people have looked into this. So, you know, it's really easy to say, okay, the benefit is you're not going to injure your knee. And as a coach at a certain level, that might be hugely beneficial to me because it means that I'm going to have more players available on my bench. I'm more likely to win. I'm more likely to achieve that championship. So I'm going to be doing my job better. But we also know that these programs improve performance they improve the satisfaction of the athletes and the coaches. So there's a lot of benefits beyond just preventing the injuries themselves. And there's lots of really great work that's been done in a variety of sports to show that. So it, it isn't purely about just preventing injury. It's actually about improving performance and having a more cohesive group if you're talking about a team sport. And, you know, obviously associated with that, there's an economic piece too. If you have less injuries, then there's a benefit to, you know, the jurisdiction that's paying for the health care for the people that are having those injuries. So we've seen economic benefits as well. That's a superb description. And again, an area where, but the public health perspective, it would be great if we did a hell of a lot more to uh, prevent this from occurring because the long-term consequences of injuring young people subsequent, again, the rates differ, but let's say 70% of people who injure their joints may develop osteoarthritis within the next 10, 15 years. It's catastrophic for a lot of these people who otherwise then can't continue to participate. So that obviously has a huge impact. Are there any other things that you want to mention about prevention or injury prevention as a whole before we move on to the next segment? Yeah, I mean, I guess the main thing, and, and I'm sure we'll probably touch on it as we go, is really the foundation for prevention. And again, I'm using that term very loosely from preventing a risk factor to doing something after, say, an injury to improving the function of people that have the disease or the illness is exercise and physical activity and healthy lifestyle. And that fits very well with the obesity piece as well. There's really, and don't get me wrong, hopefully one day we will have a medication, we'll have a pill, we'll, we will have something that can influence how the joint deals with trauma and how it recovers from trauma, but we don't have that right now. And so it's not rocket science. It really comes down to people being active, staying active, and leading a healthy lifestyle. And although that seems a little bit boring, it really is the key. But the biggest thing I think for us as researchers and clinicians is figuring out how to help people live that approach when they're struggling. And whenever they try to do those things, they just find that they keep struggling. I think a lot of what we were trying to throw out with this paper when we wrote it is there's so much we still need to know that we need all the smart people around the world that are experts in each one of these areas to grab onto something and start working on it so we can move the field forward. Really important message. And again, something that hopefully more people will get engaged in and contribute meaningfully to that as well. Now, Jackie, the next portion of the show is really meant to be a little bit of fun, but in an effort to try to get to know you a little bit better. 
this rapid fire round where I'll just throw something at you and hopefully you'll respond rapidly back. But favorite book? There's probably a few. And, and, you know, a lot of the books that I read are related to my work. So I tried not to pick one of those. There's a book by a lady by the name of Pema Chodron that's called When Things Fall Apart. And I find uh, it's a very interesting book. And I have definitely dabbled in a lot of Buddhist philosophy in my life. And it touches on that. And I found that a lot of the messages in there have been very helpful for me. Wonderful. Favorite movie? I'm a big Forrest Gump fan. I love that movie. Right. Dog or a cat person? Definitely dog. I, I've always had dogs and then I inherited a cat, loved the cat, but I, I would say dog person. Favorite quote? The best way out is through, and that's by Robert Frost. But then I'm also a big Star Wars fan. And so there's one by Yoda that is do or do not, there is no try. Big Star Wars fan. Yeah, big Star Wars fan. Superb. What's your favorite food? Oh, I'm going to go with Thai food there. Yeah, lovely. Do you have a bad habit? Do I have a bad habit? I definitely have a bad habit. I talk fast and I like to say that's because I get excited about things. And I think associated with that is I sometimes interrupt people because I just want to, you know, engage the conversation and keep it going more. And I've gotten a little bit better over the years, but if you get me really excited about something, I tend to talk loud and I tend to, to kind of jump in a little bit too much. At least you acknowledge it. Where would you like to go on holiday? This is a tough one because I'm I'm really privileged to have been able to travel a lot in the past, although it's been pretty sparse in the last couple of years. But one place I've always wanted to go ever since I was a small child and I've not gone are the Himalayas. And I think for me that that would be something I would very much like to do. Lovely part of the world. What superpower would you have? I don't know if organization is a superpower, but I'm a fairly organized person and, and kind of a little bit over the top about that. So if that's a superpower, maybe... Yeah. And I think kind of go the other way, maybe to think of it, I'm really good at solving problems or puzzles. And so I think it's kind of that organization puzzling piece. If I had a superpower. You could meet anyone dead or alive. Who would it be? I'm probably going to say the Dalai Lama. I would love to have a conversation with him and just understand, you know, his positive take on a lot of things and, and uh, the way that he puts things in perspective, at least my perception of how he puts things into perspective and deals with tough things. Yeah, no, really impressive individual. What would you do if money were not an issue? Well, a couple of things. So, I mean, number one, I would travel. But in all honesty, I'd probably buy a big farm and basically adopt all the orphan dogs and cats out there and uh, hire a bunch of people to help look after them. I've got a pretty soft spot in my heart for creatures and um, I hate to see them suffer. So that would probably be something I'd be pretty excited about doing. I hope you get a chance to do it as well. Now, given uh, I haven't managed time particularly well today, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of final questions. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? You know, it's interesting. It kind of goes back to something I said at the start. I think that when I started working as a physiotherapist clinically, I really enjoyed what I did. And I think I got to the point where I believed that I needed to do research to help more people and that by just seeing one person at a time, it wasn't enough and that the research would allow me to help more people. And I think what I've realized as I've done research is that actually the way that we change things is one person at a time. So it it's kind of come full circle, but I think it points to the fact that I really do what I do because I want people to be able to live their full potential. And it really frustrates me to meet somebody 10 or 20 years after a significant event in their life, and they're still living the negative consequences of that event and, and would really like for them to have, have had better care or better advice or just more direction at the point when they had that incident happen so they didn't end up where they are now. 
Yeah, no, it's a wonderful insight, particularly given the complexity and damage that occurs in the context of injury and the long-lasting consequences that ultimately could have been prevented in the first place. But is is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people out there who have osteoarthritis in closing? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people who have osteoarthritis or maybe they've had a knee injury and they know that, hey, you know what, my knee health isn't going to be what it was before that knee injury. There's two things. Number one, they believe they shouldn't load their joint. They shouldn't do impact activities. They shouldn't weight bear. And I would just say that is just such a false belief. Your cartilage needs to be loaded. That's how it stays healthy. And I would also say that you, you don't want to wait until you're in so much pain and disability to seek help. To me, the red flag of when you need to seek help is when you can't be physically active anymore. So if you've got pain or lack of confidence, or there's something going on with your knee or your hip that's stopping you from being who you want to be physically and actively, that's when you want to go and seek some help, whether it be a family physician or a physiotherapist or an athletic therapist or somebody that that you trust that will send you in the right direction. Because there's no reason that you can't be physically active and have osteoarthritis. It just might, you might need the help of somebody else to figure out how to make that happen. But just because you're, you're experiencing pain with something doesn't mean you cannot be physically active. And it's really just figuring out with the help of others, how to get over that hump. Wonderful message and said so persuasively. And I hope many people follow through with that. Jackie, it's been a wonderful privilege and chance to chat about such an important issue. And I hope many people take away the important messages you've given them. Perfect. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was awesome. I'm hoping you found the content of today's show helpful and insightful and that you've learned as much from Jackie as I did from that wonderful conversation we just had. The important messages I guess I'd like for you to take away from this is that at present, we can do a lot to prevent osteoarthritis. There's a lot of modifiable risk factors. Singularly, there's a big focus on people who are above a healthy weight and people who are at risk of joint injury and preventing both of those. But from a public health perspective at present, there's very little done to prevent either of those risk factors, which we know account for the most people who are developing osteoarthritis. So there's a lot that you can do as an individual if those risk factors pertain to you. But there's also a lot that we can do societally to prevent those who might be at risk of subsequent development of osteoarthritis later in their life. For those that are injuring their joints, that can happen as a young adult. And so it's incredibly important that we don't put those people at risk for subsequent development of osteoarthritis. Such an important area that's critically relevant both to you as individuals with osteoarthritis, but also to the society as a whole, as we try to implement public health strategies to reduce the impact and burden of this omnipresent disease called osteoarthritis. Thank you so much for your attention, your continued support of the podcast. I look forward to speaking to you again very soon, but in the interim, please do take care. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.